that pretty much says it all. The Bible does not specifically mention Mary's parents. We never hear a thing about them. It's reasonable to assume, however, that her mother and her father were, in fact, intimately involved and connected uh, with her life and her family. It's not a stretch. It's not a reach to assume that. Even though Mary ended up having a, what, unique calling from God for her future, which is quite possibly the single most under estimated statement in all of human history, her parents likely had expectations for their daughter just like any normal parent at that time. In fact, how many of you have children? I don't care if they're adults or if they're small. How many of you have children? How many of you, when you looked upon that child, when you saw it for the first time, and from that point forward throughout many days, months, and years, had and built expectations for that child? You could just imagine what they were going to do, who they were going to be, etc. Well, it would be no different here. Mary's mother, looking upon her little baby girl, would have expectations for that child. Why not? She was a parent. Yes? Now... Expectations change with circumstances and such. However, it would not be a stretch. First century Jewish mothers had hopes for their daughters. You heard Mary's mother say it herself. She had hopes for her daughter, and that was commonplace. Listen to this. They desired their daughters to grow up to be wives and mothers with reputations that represented the family with honor, with dignity, and with righteousness before God as well as the community. Now, if we pause right here for just a moment, you could see why Mary's mom was slightly upset for just a moment. What have you done? Nearly every Jewish girl... You want to know about lofty aspirations? Listen to this. Nearly every Jewish girl dreamed of becoming the one who would give birth to the Messiah of their people. And if not themselves, if they didn't conceive and birth that child, that holy, righteous child of God, then their daughters would be the next best possibility. This, indeed, was to be the plan of God for Mary's life. You know what's so funny? Is when you listen to Mary's mom. How she said, she came at me one morning with stories of angels and of God. And I said, what have you done? How many of you have expectations and yet the actual fruition of those things is not really expected at all? Mary's mother. 
it happened, mom. Guess what? And you're met with the idea of what have you done? Have any unrealized expectations because you just really don't believe them at all? Well, Luke's Gospel. Open your Bibles, if you would, to the first chapter of Luke's Gospel. We're going to begin in verse 26. And this is how Luke, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, records this divine event. It's going to be right behind me, so if you don't have a Bible or you can't find Luke, or you just don't want to, right here. Luke chapter 1. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. If you've never encountered an angel face-to-face and in the flesh, you're probably going to freak out if you do. But if you do freak out, that's the greeting you want to hear. Fear not, sweetheart. I'm not going to squash you because you're favored by God. That's a good thing. Yeah? I'm thinking that. But she was greatly troubled. See, I told you. She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Am I going to die or am I okay? Am I going to die or am I okay? Am I going to die or am I okay? That's what that meant. No, there's no theology behind that at all. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, from Mary's perspective, that's drinking from a fire hydrant. You've never even seen an angel, much less having a conversation with one, and that's what he lays on you. Mary said to the angel, Imagine everything that you've just heard, and what she's hung up on is getting pregnant. You've just heard everything this angel has just said, and she's hung on the pregnant part. Listen, she says this. How will this be since I'm a virgin? And he's like, really? After everything I just told you, you're hung up on that? Our expectations of God, our imagination of God is, our expectations of God are like, hmm. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be, uh, to be born will be called Holy, 
the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this, and, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. Now these next seven words are these seven words by which our lives should be governed by. The next seven are everything in this scenario and in our scenario. Because not only does he address Mary, he addresses Elizabeth too and basically says, Look, you're not even going to be with a man and you're getting pregnant. And this lady, she can't get pregnant and she is six months in. And he says this, For nothing will be impossible with God. You can do that if you want. He deserves that. And Mary said, Wow. Okay, this is the English, what is it? English Standard Version? This is the English Standard Version. And it doesn't say, Wow. As a matter of fact, I don't know of a version or a translation, and they are different. That says, wow. I don't know of a one. Not even the message. And the message is pretty, pretty out there. And not even the message says, wow. But she's saying, wow. Behold, wow. I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to thy word according to your word. And the angel departed from her. We do know, do we, I'm sorry, we do not know exactly how Mary told her parents about the plans that God had given to her um, by way of the angel Gabriel regarding becoming the mother of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We don't know how she brought that news to her folks. But if if our video this morning is any indicator, this righteous woman of God probably was depicted reasonably well. The, what have you done today? Today? We tend to give in the church. Righteous, holy people will give baby showers for such events. Not shocked at all. At all. This woman, mind blown. What have you done? You've got to keep in mind, today, premarital pregnancy is an everyday event. We embrace it. We in, we wrap our arms around it and we think it's just fine. Back then, you die for it. And she knew it. Thank God for Joseph. And an alternate plan. Thank God. Thank God for God. <laughs> yeah. I don't think that what happened, what we saw, what we witnessed, what we heard is probably too far-fetched from what actually happened. As a matter of fact, that was probably dialed down a bit. 
Because remember, they want daughters raised with righteousness and, and pureness and all that in front of the community, in front of God, great reputations and so on. And here we go. We've got this girl who's pregnant and not married. Perhaps a range, a whole range of emotions did cycle through Mary's parents. Not the least of which, I'm sure her dad lost hair. If for no other reason, he pulled it out himself. I'm going to kill that Joseph. I don't know if you girls know this, but men are still protective of women. And if they're not, shame on them. It's likely that her mother needed some time to process uh, and come to terms with what her daughter had relayed to her about her impending grandson, the Son of God. Sometimes people need a minute. You ever need a minute? You ever hear a word and you're just kind of like, and you need a minute? Have you ever needed a few months? You hear it and it's like, And from that point forward, you don't speak. Your left eye just twitches for weeks on end. However, if God could do what He did, now think about this, if God could do what He did inside the womb of this young virgin girl in the formation of His Son, immaculately conceived, God would not come up short on the work that he could and would do in the heart and in the life of Mary's mother just as well. What the angel said to Mary went far, far beyond only her life and her unique situation. It reached throughout all time. Remember what he said? Verse 37 of Luke 1, remember? For nothing will be impossible with God. So we've got Mary conceiving outside of wedlock without having been with a man. We've got Elizabeth who doesn't have a womb anymore, who that even functions or operates in the least bit. She's pregnant. She's six months pregnant. And now we have Mary's mom utterly mind-blown, freaking out, going around the house, throwing things at their dad. It's your fault. It's what you get for taking her out camping all the time. But God changes her too. Perhaps what seemed impossible was Mary's mother's response and how it shifted over time. In the coming months, Mary would give birth to Jesus in circumstances that, again, were somewhat less than what her mother probably expected. How many of you moms have daughters that you think to yourselves as that day approaches you can imagine how you want this to play out because you want what's best for your girl you want what's best for the baby and you play out yeah mary's it didn't work that way and i'm quite certain that mary's mom was like if she had been there to to witness what was going on in bethlehem she's like oh How many of you want your girl going and having a baby like that? Raise your hand. Let's get in line now. 
all of you who desire this to pan out that way, there are barns all over Navarro County. We can throw your girls in them. Anybody? Come on. Nobody? Cowards. Yeah, so she was there. Huh. And then, if, it, if, if, if the barn thing, there's no room at the inn. If that wasn't bad enough, then there was that whole, uh, you, you know, that infamous scenario where, where Herod's men showed up, swords drawn, wanting to take out the newborn king. And so, in a dream... Joseph's told, yeah, can't go back home right now. And so what does he do? He jets on down to the northeast corner of Africa. For two years. And grandma's at home going, I sure wish I could see that grandson. Two years. That's a long time for a grandma to not see her grandson. How many of you have ever had that kind of separation from your grandchildren? You see, here's the deal. Mary couldn't just... Baby was born. He's cute. Got God's nose. Having to rush off to Egypt. Can't talk now. We'll send pictures Send. That wasn't available at the time. It doesn't work that way when you're a first century Jewish girl giving birth to God's son. Basically, you're MIA and grandma doesn't know where you are. And in order to get correspondence to her, you don't IM her. You send a correspondence that takes a long time. And you finally get to hold baby boy at about two years old. There are a lot of people that have held your grandson and you haven't. Although history does not record any of this, a historical record does not exist, it's reasonable to believe that in time, Mary's mother likely met Jesus and held him in her arms. And she got to witness his majesty. Ultimately, Jesus was her grandchild after all. Imagine, try to imagine the love, the emotions that Mary's mother must have had. How she must have felt at the moment Mary walked up and introduced Jesus to Grandma. Mima whoever you call her. Imagine that. Now imagine. Imagine being able to capture that in a photograph. That moment when she got to... How, how might have she have felt... Have you ever seen a photograph that actually captures a moment and isn't just a static image? Have you ever seen a picture that captures a moment? I've seen a passel of them. Some of them, a lot of them, are horrible photographs. 
You've seen them too if you're anywhere near my age. But can you imagine capturing that moment where Grandma is reaching and Mary is handing and that embrace? Can you imagine if grandmother, upon holding that little two-year-old, if she could zoom out in her mind, in her spirit, if she could zoom out and see the full life of Jesus, what if she could see the miracles? What if grandma could see the cross? What if she could see the resurrection? And what do you imagine grandma would do if she could see the ascension of Jesus Christ? And ultimately, what if she could see the way the church began to form in a matter of just decades after that moment? What would Grandma be feeling? And can you imagine capturing that image? Well, let's see what God can do. What God was in the process of doing is, was far beyond what Mary's mother or anyone else could ever ask or even imagine. In fact, what God was going to do could be categorized, now listen carefully, and then freeze this in your mind for the rest of the message. He was in the process of, could be categorized as the ultimate gift for a grandmother. That's what he was doing. Giving the ultimate gift of a grandmother. For a grandmother. The snapshot of that gift can be seen, and we've read it a hundred times, every one of us, in the early days of the formation of the church in Jerusalem. Look at Acts chapter 4. Beginning in verse 32, the Bible says, Now the full number, did you catch that? In more used translations of the Bible, it says, In one mind and one accord. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Now think about that. We're talking about the upper room. We're talking about the gathering there. And it says the full number of those who believed, the full number. There was no odd man out. There was no fifth wheel. The, the full number who, were, who believed were in one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. There was not a needy person among them. All the believers were in one heart and soul. And there was not one needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, 
which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Well, question. Did anybody here see the ultimate gift for a grandmother in that passage? Did anybody catch that? The ultimate gift for a grandmother. Maybe it's because you're not reading we haven't been reading this passage through the lens of a first century Jewish grandmother or maybe a first century Jewish grandfather or a parent. You see, this ultimate gift that is described in Acts chapter 4 is actually, here's something for you, gender neutral. It's a gender neutral gift. It's not just for a first century grandmother. It could be for a grandfather or the parents. It's just an ultimate gift for a grandparent or parent of a first century Jew that translates into the ultimate gift for a 21st century follower of Jesus. No, it's not a gift certificate to a spa or a special picture collage of your kids. Just for the record, I live with my kids. Don't get me a picture collage of them. Okay? Thank you. Rather, it's the kind of person that your kid or grandkid, listen carefully, grows up to be. And that kind of person is described in Acts chapter 4 what we just read. Let's take a closer look at what I'm talking about from the text uh, from Acts 4. Let's look at verse 32, this one specifically. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. How many of you would like that from your children? Nobody. How many of you would like your children, since we've already admitted we have expectations of our children, right? Right? Yeah, of course we do. How many of you want them to grow up being of one heart and one soul with the rest of the body of Christ? I do. Right there is the ultimate gift for a grandmother. That's it. First century Jewish mom for a first century Jewish dad, and for a 21st century follower of Jesus who raises their kids and their grandkids to grow up to be a certain kind of person. The ultimate gift is for their kids to grow up to be believers who are living lives that are comprised of one heart and one soul. I personally believe, and I do not believe that I am alone in this belief, that one of the greatest problems in the church, probably the problem that has discredited and devalued the name of the church, is not that we're in one heart and one soul. It's that we are divided and divisive. 
That's my personal opinion. Not only are we divided, we actively pursue divisiveness. Not only am I not who you are, I'm going to make sure you know it and everybody else does so there's a divide. Stay away. How many times have there been jokes made and slants and slights and comments made about different denominations from every pulpit in existence? Why? Because you're different than I am. That's why. Your worship tradition is different, so let's make fun of it. Your people do or don't believe X, Y, and Z, so let's make a comment about it. We're not only divided, we're divisive. But Acts is testifying to the reality that when the church was being birthed, it was anything but divided and divisive. Isn't that kind of where we want our kids to be? Okay, look, this is where we are today. Let's try to change that tomorrow. Matthew is on the back pew clapping. Thank you, Matthew. I appreciate your ministry. If you raise a kid who moves toward having one heart and one soul, that believes in and lives for the one true God named Jesus, then everything else, hear that, Everything else in their lives falls into place. The evidence of a one heart and soul kind of person is described in the rest of the verses we read. There in chapter 4 of the book of Acts. Let's dig just a little bit deeper and look at some of the backstory of this ultimate gift of having one heart and one soul kind of life. Let's look at this a little closer. The phrase, one heart and soul, sometimes stated as one heart and mind, is typically a Hebraic phrase that frequently occurs in the Old Testament writings of Deuteronomy. Now remember what Deuteronomy means. Interpreting the the name, the word Deuteronomy means second law. So please understand, this isn't the first time this has rolled around. One of the most significant parts of the whole Bible for a Jewish person is found in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9. It is known as the Shema. Every Jewish person, you're going to get this in just a second. It's not detached from what we're talking about. It's not useless information. Trust me, we're on track for something. Every Jewish person had the Shema committed to memory. The term Shema means the saying. It was the saying a Jewish boy would recite at his bar mitzvah as a rite of passage from being a boy and becoming a man. This is the Shema. Listen. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command to you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children 
and shall talk of them when you sit down in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. A first century Jewish parent, if you could raise a kid who loved and lived like that, it was the ultimate gift you could possibly imagine. And the way they would sum that ultimate gift up is a person who is one heart and one soul. You see, there is a difference between first century or older Jewish individuals and us today. You see, our lives, our living, our society, our communities do not revolve around God in any way, shape, or form. And therefore, we don't concentrate on things like Deuteronomy 6. Because really, there are a lot of things to get done. Right? I mean, when the season hits, there's soccer. And there's all the various sports. Let's be honest. And let's not forget, man, the first Saturday of November, it is deer season. And the list just goes on and on and on and on and on. How many of you have the word of the Lord on your doorpost? Man, if there's one thing that I've failed at, And there's a lot of things I've failed at. It's every time we sit down, we're not talking about the Lord in one capacity or another. Because look, the dryer just went out, and I have towels to wash. That that actually did happen. I'm waiting till Monday to call the repair guy. I I have at least two appointments next week. One's with my cardiologist. And we just, we just, and what we do is we diffuse our realities with our television set. That's what we do. You tell me, I'm not telling you the truth. Man, if you could raise a kid like like that, who lived like that, that would be the ultimate gift. If your heart and your soul were one, then everything else in a person's life was in alignment. Nothing else was out of balance. Nothing else was out of balance. It doesn't mean that life you're, sco- you're just skating through life and everything's hunky-dory. It means that you are in balance. It doesn't mean life is perfect. Life isn't perfect. Has everybody figured that out? Yeah, life is not perfect. But the question becomes, is your life in balance? There's a difference between perfect and balance. Everything in one's heart and soul, one heart, one soul, life was right. Where God wanted it to be and thus was right where a parent could only hope and pray for their child's life. 
A one heart and soul life was the ultimate gift for a grandmother, for a grandfather, for a mom, for a dad. The ultimate gift. Look how one in heart and soul, just look at this, shows up in the Bible, especially in Deuteronomy. Watch this. Deuteronomy 10. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Deuteronomy 11. And if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve Him with all your heart and with all your soul. Deuteronomy 26. This day, the Lord your God commands you to do these statutes and rules. You shall therefore be careful to do them with all your heart and with all your soul. Deuteronomy chapter 30. And return to the Lord your God and your children and obey His voice in all that I command you today. With all your heart and with all your soul. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. That you may live when you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep His commandments and His statutes that are written in this book of the law. When you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul. That's kind of a repetitive theme. It's kind of there for us to pay attention to. Look, if God's Word is in fact an inspired document, breathed on by God, and He repeats Himself that many times, I think we need to pay attention to what He's trying to tell us. Later, in the New Testament, When Jesus was in a conversation with a religious leader, he asked Jesus this question recorded in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. This is what he asked. Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, that the Lord your God, our God, the Lord is one. Does this sound familiar? Because we've repeated this about umpteen times so far. And here Jesus is now saying the exact same thing. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. This is the Shema. And with all your soul. And with all your mind and with all your strength. One heart, one soul, one mind, one strength. All one. With all who you are. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. I think God's trying to get us to understand something. What Jesus said was that if you want to know what the ultimate gift is, and we are in that season, yes? Be a person. Be a person who has a oneness in their heart and soul towards Him. If a person has a belief and a life that lives in oneness with Jesus, then everything else flows from that oneness. When there is oneness vertically with you and with Jesus, now watch this. This is an age-old illustration. 
then you are in right alignment to have oneness horizontally with you and with others. But if you're just trying to work your magic because you're oh so charming to be in oneness with everybody else, but you're out of whack with him, I'm sorry, it's not going to fly. In other words, these early followers of Jesus were living in a community with Jesus and with others. When we go back to what we talked about in Acts 4, that's what we're talking about. They were in oneness with Jesus and they were in oneness with others. This is what we see in the back half of verse 32 through the end of the chapter. Look again at what happens when you are living a one heart and soul kind of life that is in community with Jesus. You then are in alignment to live in community with others who also are trying to follow Jesus. Acts chapter 4. Look at this again. And no one said that any of the things they, uh, that belonged to him was his own. Wow, that's a leap. And I'm not being ugly. I'm just saying. Imagine this. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means the son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Has anyone here ever struggled with that concept? What we just read, you've struggled with that because it just doesn't make practical sense. Has anyone here ever struggled with that? Or was it all, has it always been clear as a bell? There's some practicality issues here that I personally have struggled with. But let's move on. Mom, dad, grandparents. Is that not a picture of how of the kind of kid, the kind of child you would be proud to call your own? Can you imagine how you would feel if your kid had some property? sold the whole kit and caboodle, brought it into the apostles, the pastors, whoever at the time, laid it at their feet and said, take care of the needs. And from that point forward, that ex- that, those proceeds were used as expenditures to take care of other people. That's a kid you want hanging around, right? Right? Is this a Pentecostal church? Now, listen, oh, just, I, I know that sounded funny. I was raised Catholic. I know what quiet church is about. I've been sprinkled and I've smelled intoxicating uh, uh, the stuff that they burn. Incense. I've seen it all. I've never understood how someone could get up and perform a homily, a sermon, in robes. I'm sweating like a pig right now. How do they do it? Is this a Pentecostal church? 
somebody say amen without me having to ask. Simply because you believe it and know it to be true, whether it's stepping on your toes because you're a greedy miser, or whether you're a giver, I don't care. I got an amen. Look, man, it wasn't all that long ago. I was a Catholic for half my life. I understand quiet church. When did Pentecostals get quiet? When did we get so proper? I know when we got proper. I know exactly when we got quiet. We got quiet when we stopped celebrating God's power and how blessed I am, and we moved on to things where we're starting to indict the church for not aligning with God's Word. That's when we got quiet. Someone might want to get Pentecostal in this house because I'm not stopping. You know, Pentecostals also believe in divine healing. And if your toes are regularly being stomped on, we'll pray for you. I know how to lay hands on toes. Do me one favor wash your feet beforehand. Or keep your shoes on. I don't even know where I am. You're laughing. I'm serious. And then, what a blessing to have a child growing in their faith to the degree that they are becoming so systematically spontaneous in their generosity toward others that they are a blessing to all who have a need. Go figure. Do you want... Here's a legitimate question. Do you want a stingy, miserly, and close-fisted kid? Or one who lives life in a community with others and blesses them at their point of need as much as they are able to do so. Choose. Which one do you want? Who wouldn't want a kid who grow up who grew up to live open handed and generous? That's what I want. I'm praying. They're both over here going hate you dad isn't that isn't that what all moms want from their kids isn't that what all dads want from their kids isn't that what all grandparents wanted for their kids amen from the very earliest age mine my mom trained me she taught me to not be sting, not to be a sting, a stingy weasel. I mean, from the area, I mean, sharing was the big deal. Don't be a stingy weasel, but be a generous person that gives to others. I mean, I, my mom was, is, really good at that. Your nature, and we all know this. We we all can relate to this. Our nature as a little kid is 
the same as every other little kid's nature. Our nature is to say, mine. That's mine. How many kids have you broken up who this kid's playing with that car and this kid comes over and says, that's mine. Uh, Or there's a brawl. I'm going to be honest with you. If there's a brawl, I am going to sit back and watch a minute. Okay? It's going to happen. I might even go, 10 on the big kid. That's not true. Perhaps you had a, a, a great mom. Who here had a great mom? Has a great mom? My wife has a, her mom's um, ringtone is, you might have a mom, she might be the mom, but there ain't no other mom like mine. Little song. Every time I hear that ring, you might have a mom, she might be the mom, but ain't nobody like a mom like mine. Maybe you had a great mom from the start who taught you how to share. I'm betting dollars to donuts here that my mom wasn't the only one. So many moms and grandmothers teach their kids the difference between mine and share. Great moms do that. The nature of most kids, as already stated, is mine. Give it to me. It's mine. Therefore, good parents and grandparents must help teach them to share. How about you? Does, does anybody else have a parent who from the early age said this? Okay, Susie, Johnny, don't share. Life is really all about me and mine. That's what your mom taught you, right? Nah. They didn't. When we teach our kids to share and care for others, we are leading them toward the ultimate kind of life that Jesus had in mind. That sounds really, really simple, but it is the case. For God so loved the world that He gave. We're leading them toward the ultimate kind of life that Jesus had in mind because Jesus lived that out. The first century church lived that out. Are we living that out? It's a kind of life that is a one heart and soul kind of life that believes in the one true God named Jesus, who in turn blesses others with generosity, with love, with compassion, and with care. William Barclay, I referred to William Barclay just last week in my message, notes that the early followers of Jesus, those who were one heart and one soul people who believed in Jesus, had an intense sense of responsibility for each other that awoke a real desire to share all they had. And it was not legislated. It wasn't like the apostles were saying, you need to do... No, it was a sense of responsibility that was inherent in their newly born lives. It was utterly spontaneous. 
This way of life stemmed from the pages of Deuteronomy. Again! From the early days of history, the people of God were mindful of the divine instruction not to have poor people in God's family. Don't have them. Care for them. Take care of them. Look what it says back in Deuteronomy 15. But there will be no, listen to this, there will be no poor among you. Now notice he says, it would be nice if there wasn't any. That's not what that says. Deuteronomy There will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, if only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. We worry about have we prayed enough. We worry Did I read my required Bible today? When God says you won't have any poor among you, He doesn't say, I'm telling you, I'm going to send you to hell if you don't pray enough today. God doesn't say that. He says in Deuteronomy, you will have no poor. We're worried about stuff. Are we playing the right music, Kenzie? Oh, Father in heaven, I hope you're blessed by... Oh, please. Christianity is not a theoretical. Christianity is a practical. It walks itself out. It does not hover on some some theoretical craft. It walks every day. And it either is or it is not manifest every day in those who believe in Jesus Christ. It either is walked out or it is not. So the question is, what in heaven's name are we doing? Theologically, the early believers considered themselves the righteous remnant within Israel. Well, that's true. So Deuteronomy 15, which we just got done reading, undoubtedly was on their mind because they believed as first century church believers that they were a holy remnant, the holy remnant within the framework of Israel. Therefore, God's original instructions, as is found in Deuteronomy 15, applied to them. Don't tell me the old book is irrelevant because we're under grace. Poppycock, read your Bible again. You don't know what you're talking about. You want to know how your life is to be governed? There will be no poor among the believers. We can start there. So that's what they thought. There should be no poor among you. In the minds of these Jewish people from biblical days, living a one heart and soul kind of life, was about being in community with the one true God and living in community with their neighbors. Won't you be my neighbor? And if they were living the ultimate life, they would stamp out poverty 
and need by being generous with the blessings God had given to them. In other words, God wants His people to be about share, not about mine. Michael Green said this in a book that he wrote, 30 Years That Changed the World. Quote, A feature of the lifestyle of these early Christians was generosity. The gospel made an enormous difference to their bank balance. And people in Western culture could sit up and take notice when they see Christians making major financial sacrifices for Jesus Christ, end quote. Don't worry, we're about done. What would that look like for you? What would that look like for you? Making a major financial sacrifice as a believer, what would that look like for you? If you are a follower of Jesus, to make a significant financial sacrifice for Jesus Christ. Now, keep in mind, this isn't a who gave more than the other guy. Because no one's on the same playing field. This is, it's, it's within the concept or the framework of your means. Okay, So understand that. And just for the record, we're not talking about dropping a $20 bill in the offering plate. Although, for some people, dropping a $20 bill in the offer, offering plate is a pretty significant financial sacrifice. But on the whole, that's not what we're talking about. Let's give just some examples. Just examples. What about starting off, just starting off by tithing an actual 10% of your gross income? And for some, that is a major, significant financial sacrifice. How about contributing significantly over and above your 10% tithe to send somebody or somebody's, plural, to the mission field. We've got one up and coming. For those of you who can't see him behind the tree, it's our drummer, Trey. Ooh, here's a biggie. This one's going to freak some of you out. And some of you are like, nah, that's not so much. How about making a choice to adopt a child? Okay, I'm fired. I can see it now. How about making a, te- making a decision to adopt children? Okay, not on, not on, now, not only am I fired, they're going to kill me in the parking lot. So that an orphan might have an actual chance at growing up and becoming, because of what you did, and then your subsequent influences on them, a one heart and soul kind of believer in Jesus Christ. Boy, there's a lot of amens I just got from that. So how many of you are going to adopt a child or children? Just curious. Those of you who amen. How about taking that income tax check uh, and applying that, applying that to the remaining debt of a local church or a family that has a medical debt? There will be no poor among 
How about choosing to stay? Wow. This one's a, this is a good. How about choosing to stay in a lower paying job as opposed to climbing the corporate ladder because you believe God has put you in the place you're currently in to people, to influence people's lives for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I know the argument on that one. Well, I can influence rich people when I'm higher up the ladder. It is harder for a rich man to get into heaven than to pass a camel through the eye. So much of what we see here in the early church, like Acts chapter 4, we also see mirrored in Acts chapter 2, late. Quote, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. There was unity in their community. Biblical scholar John MacArthur talks about how their unity stemmed from focusing on those priorities Jesus had left them. Listen to this. Selflessly, this is Acts 2 and 45. Loving each other and reaching the lost world. That's what it goes on to talk about in Acts 2 and 45. And there were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as all had need. Now, why did they do that? Why did they do that? I promise you, we're coming to a close. I promise. Why did they do that? Were they turning into a bunch of communists? Doesn't some of that sound like communism? Were were they turning into socialists? And promoting those ideas with these kinds of actions? No. The book of Acts, Deuteronomy, kind of living. It isn't communism. It isn't socialism. It's called generosity. Socialism and communism, those things are top-down philosophies. And I promise you, as much as some of the people in our world are drinking the communist, socialist, Marxist Kool-Aid, as because they've been brought into this idea of this wonderful utopian idea of everybody's on equal standing, I want you to understand there is no equal standing in those philosophies. It is top down. And the top is as wealthy as can be. And the bottom is as poor as they can be. And they're governed by an iron fist and at the point of the barrel of a gun. Do not confuse them. God said there will be no poor. In those philosophies, the poor are the norm. What happened just months ago with one of the three creator slash originators of Black Lives Matter? She got ousted because of her millions invested in her home. That's the truth of communism and Marxism. This isn't any of that. Communism and Marxism? Karl Marx. I'm going to go this far. 
even though those who I've read haven't. They've danced around it some, but I'm not going to dance. I have terrible rhythm in my feet. Karl Marx was possessed. And the bottom line is socialism, Marxism, fascism, all of it. That's man-made. It's inspired of the devil himself. New Testament Christianity that finds its origins in the book of Deuteronomy, that's inspired by the Holy Spirit of God in Him alone. And it manifests itself in the generosity of believers who are of one heart and soul and align themselves with Christ Jesus. Listen, these people like Joseph who sold the property... They still own property. What are you going to become if you sell your house where you live and all your possessions and then give everything to the church to be distributed to poor people? You're going to be poor people. Right? Well, what happens then? Well, now all of a sudden it's going to meet your need. How annoying is that? Practical. Christianity is practical. It's also intelligent. It's not stupid. You got stuff? Good for you. Guess what? We don't function without folk with stuff. Every time Audrey gets into this pulpit, every single time she says, thank you for paying your tithes and offerings because it's what keeps this building and this ministry going. All of you are poor folk. Every one of you living under a dumpster. Guess what? No lights on here. Guess what? Everybody in this building is freezing cold or boiling hot. And what that means is there's no one here. We need people who have stuff. And the more stuff, the better. Why? Because the more stuff, God moves on you, and you move in your generosity in alignment with Jesus Christ, and you bless the poor so that there aren't any. There may be a plentiful amount of poor Lazaruses at the gate, but we also need some Solomons. There was no compulsion. This was generosity. This was spontaneous. No one was compelling anyone to do this. No compulsion. There was simply life changes happening inside of the people who were allowing or following Jesus who had saved them, and they turned around, just like the angel told Mary, and, and God's plan came to pass. Give me a, just grasp that. It's not hard. Acts 4, 32 through 37 is a picture of what it looks like when people of God begin to demonstrate what the kingdom of God looks like on earth as it is in heaven. Needs get met. The gospel is shared in the word and in deed. Unity is present in the community as the church finds itself living on mission. We're really good about praying about needs. Has it ever occurred to you that maybe some of the needs that we're praying about for other people aren't being met because you're supposed to be meeting them and God isn't? Has it ever occurred to us? We could pray all day long and God's up there going, wow, they talk a lot. Whew. 
Angels, these huge, massive angels, spears, they look over at God and go, I know, man, I've been listening to them too. Maybe if we would just step up as believers, we wouldn't have to wonder why God isn't answering our prayers. You're the answer to the prayers. And maybe if we were actually functioning in that apparatus, maybe the church would get some more of its reputation and credibility back. We've been so obsessed with send your money to my ministry and you're going to be blessed of God. Yeah, God didn't say send it to rich preachers who you will never meet and who will never correspond with you. He never said that. He said, give it to the poor and watch me open the windows of heaven. These are the characteristics of one heart, one soul kind of living by people who have become open to seeing what God can do through them and their unique circumstances. Perhaps Mary's mother in the video you listen to said it as well as it could possibly be said. Let's see what God can do. Stand with me. Father, we love you this morning. We ask that you administer to this house. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for the blessings of your word. And Father, I just ask that you administer today in the people of God who are seated here this morning to hear the word of God. Father, as we celebrate this season, this Christmas season, what better message than one of giving? Father, what would happen to this world if the church gave to the point of eradicating poor in our midst? Wow. I don't know. But you do. You're the one who wrote it. So, Father, I just pray that you would help this seed to be buried into the ground of fertile individuals. And that that soil would take in that seed. And that, Lord, you would do a work. I can't do that work. I've done the job that you've given me to do to the best of my ability. Granted, not the greatest. But I've done the best I could. And so, Father, now I I commit this seed to you. And, Father, these are your children. They're your believers. And, Lord, I know you can do a miraculous thing. And so, Father, I bless them with fertile ground and water and tilling and tending by the Holy Spirit of Almighty God and those other influences that you may see fit to bring into their lives. And Father, I pray all this in Jesus' name. And Lord, we know that you are in the business of loving people 
to the point of redemption. And I ask this morning that as we proceed into this holiday season, that you would touch lives with the Spirit of Almighty God to turn people's lives from darkness to light. And we ask all this in Jesus' precious holy name. Amen and amen. Guys, I thank you for hanging with me. I know the message was long, but I I appreciate you staying with me. Go with God, be safe, and we will see you again very soon. You are dismissed this morning.